Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin, celebrating July 5th. Yesterday was July 4th as far as the live broadcast, 6 if you're listening on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, but we were able to spend the day feasting with family and fireworks, as is the American way. We are grateful for you uh, not only doing the same with your families if you were able, but also joining us here today. Note that just because uh, we took one day off doesn't mean we haven't forgotten why we're here. If you'd like to send us your Bible questions, we are setting ourselves aside for the next hour to answer them, and you can send them to us a number of ways. You can join us on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, it's in the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our streaming page, ccftucson.online.church. On the right-hand side of the screen, you can leave your questions for us at any time during the broadcast or afterwards. We'll have the email address spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen, so you can take advantage of that at any time. We also have a YouTube page titled A Reason for Hope and a Facebook page titled Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, since those, uh, I guess, sources of information and communication are very much unpredictable as far as when or why we are removed from them, we've had problems in the past, so we go out of our way to inform you of this with no shortage of of, uh, I guess, good humor on my part. Please feel free to join us on our website. There we, of course, won't be banned on our own platform yet. So any way that you are able to and willing to send us your Bible questions, remember the three standards for our questions are sincerity, biblicity, I don't know the, the way to keep the uh, tone of the language connected in that regard, but uh, biblical relevance, I guess, would be the way to properly phrase that, and of course that it is in fact the form of a question. Sincerity requires you to want to hear the answer, not just to throw out a question and then just leave it like a grenade, or in this case a firework in the living room. We want to make sure that it's about the Bible, so if the question's answer ultimately leaves us in the Bible as far as its substance, we'll be happy to address it. And of course, questions give answers, not statements. So. If you can meet those standards, we'll be happy to engage with you for the next hour. But before we make any efforts, and as well starting with our apologetics topic, we want to make sure that God speaks more than we do. So, Peter, why don't you start us off in a word of prayer, and we'll get into some of the issues as the questions start coming in. Sounds good. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for all the work that you do in our lives, how you care for us and love us, no matter our circumstances. And so, Lord, I pray that right now we'd be able to focus our attention on you, that we'd be able to fixate uh, the, way I, the way we think and the way that we're about to reason through these things on your word and allow the things that we say to be um, something that honors your word, that glorifies your word and doesn't deviate from its truth. We love you, Lord, and in your name. Amen. That is true. Now, last 
time we were able to discuss this issue. We were dealing with the controversy surrounding the overturning of Roe versus Wade. It was a decision made in the Supreme Court in the United States many years ago that essentially conflated the right to privacy in one of our amendments with the right to an abortion, and that, of course, being in federal law. Both people across party lines acknowledged that this was a very poorly formed law, and even Democrats like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the hopefully overwhelming majority of Republicans would, of course, oppose this law. But mass media and propaganda being what they are, don't let the facts get in the way of your feelings. The response was outright violent. Now, of course, every single display of violence in the physical was also reflected in the vocal, and the Twitter sphere gave us no shortage of rehashings of old arguments in favor of abortion, even from a biblical perspective, apparently. So what we wanted to do is to take some time, again, to clarify and double down on this issue to make sure that those of you listening as well as maybe those of you asking these very questions for yourselves are familiar with the arguments and also that there are responses or even clarifications to it. Now, obviously, any one of us who have interacted with another human being with a brain than our own are going to hear things we hadn't thought of before, so we want to be prepared. But of course, also knowing not just what to think about an issue, but how to think about an issue. That would be our goal. I can think of, maybe right off the bat, three quote-unquote biblically based, and of course extra-biblically based mostly, arguments that are presented in favor of abortion. But noting uh, as well that uh, this was your idea, why don't uh, you start us off? We'll go back and forth and addressing some of these. Yeah, no, sounds good. So uh, the beauty of Roe versus Wade being overturned uh, in the way that the United States democracy works is that the original intent is that you would have to convince your neighbor of the truth so that they would vote for it in the ballot. Uh, when the Supreme Court made this order, basically it took away the need for debate because it doesn't matter how many people I convince that Roe versus Wake is unlawful or that abortion is bad, the Supreme Court then held the power and the Supreme Court is unelected. So it really wouldn't matter how many people you convinced in your local politic that this is the correct way to doing things. It wouldn't make any difference in federal law. So the, what Roe versus Wade has done, the overturning of Roe versus Wade has done, is it's returned the issue to the states and now you must convince your neighbor of the truth that you see in order for them to vote on that and to allow that to become the law within your personal state. That's how things were supposed to be, and now that's how things are once again. So We're the United States, not the kingship of Washington, D.C. That's right. And so as some pro-lifers have said, and I'm actually going to hang out with my buddy uh, who works at Hands of Hope next week, which I'm really excited about to see how they're dealing with it. Hands of Hope is a local Tucson ministry that is a pregnancy center for women who are basically in a crisis pregnancy. They're in an unwanted pregnancy. They don't know what to do. This place offers them resources and helps them to make a decision to keep the child as well as directing them to particular resources that will help them to keep the child. And, and by the way, that's not a shameless plug. The relevance of those facts will be the answer to one of our issues. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah, whatever city or state that you're living in, this is not the overturning of the Roe versus Wade did not finish the issue. It just started it. So as Christians... It made it an issue we can actually fight. Absolutely. So as Christians, now more than ever, you should know exactly why you are pro-life. And if you're not sure whether or not you're 
pro-life. Hopefully me and Sean will do some work here to convince you. Please ask questions. If you are pro-choice or you're on the fence, please ask questions. We will try to answer them in as loving and sincere way as we can. But yeah, this is the, this is the time to know where you stand on this issue and to be ready to give a defense for why you believe these things biblically as well as reasonably. So uh, absolutely, this is the time where the fight begins. If you have local organizations like Hands of Hope, start giving to them, start asking them what they need, because they're probably figuring this out on the fly, right? In the state of Arizona, uh, last I checked, the we're going to revert back to our 1912 law, which is complete absence from abortion. So we'll see if that actually goes through. We'll see our our colorful mayor, Regina Romero, is saying that she is instructing police officers to not enforce that law, which I don't know how that's going to work. But, you know, there's a lot of things in the air right now. We'll see how these things pan out. But as Christians, as believers, we need to be more ready than ever to, as I said, reason out these particular dialogues and determine where we stand. So one of the interesting arguments, and some of these arguments are really, just so you know, they're very, very bad. So I'm going to be doing my best to give the best version of them. Yeah, you're right? not going to make fun of them and belittle the argument. You're going to do what's called an Iron Man. You're going to try to solidify this argument in order to properly address what little merit in it can be. Absolutely. So uh, the argument that I saw, it was on Facebook. Someone said something to the effect of, God is certainly pro-choice because he sent the flood. And the flood, after all, wiped out women and children as well as unborn babies. So the way I could kind of, because that's a ridiculous argument, yeah, let me <laughs> let me kind of Iron Man this a little bit. Perhaps what they're saying is, if we as Christians are supposed to be pro-life, how come God does allow for people to be killed in the Old Testament, as well as you know, there are certain people, even in the New Testament Christianity, who would say that there are reasons to say, go to war, or to uh, exhibit capital punishment towards offenders of certain crimes, right? So as Christians, when we say we are pro-life, does that mean that we have to be anti-death no matter what, right? We cannot allow for anyone to die. So uh, let me give my answer to this particular question, then I'll pass it over to you. So the way I would answer it is I would say, Okay, so as a Christian, when we say we're pro-life, we don't mean that all life should be protected no matter what. What we mean is that life is inherently valuable. And in fact, life is so inherently valuable that sometimes certain people need to be deprived of their life in order to protect the lives of others. So for instance, if you're dealing with someone who is a mass murderer, a killer, if I were to end their life, I would be actually protecting the lives of all those that they would eventually kill. Or in the instance of war, if we invade Germany during World War II and end up killing many German soldiers, the death of those soldiers will actually preserve the life of many millions of Jews. So, and many other and people, other <laughs> and many other people that the Germans were killing. They, they uh, weren't as indis they weren't very discriminate in their ways of killing. So that deprivation of certain life protects the greater quantity of life. Now, we're not, as uh, some philosophers call it, utilitarians. Utilitarianism basically just states everything you do has to be the greatest good for the greatest number of people. That's not what we're talking about. So in other words, a utilitarian would say, well, if that's the case, 
then maybe I should preemptively murder people who might end up becoming murderers. So for instance, we'll deal with another potential issue in a moment. Exactly. So if I feel as though someone is sending up warning signs of being a potential murderer, maybe I should just kill them now. And therefore it would prevent them from ever killing anyone ever. We're not pure utilitarians, but we do believe that certain activities, certain actions are worthy of retribution. They're worthy of some amount of justice. Now, when it comes to the flood of Noah, it wasn't purely preventative, meaning God wasn't sending a flood because he's like, well, a lot of these people are going to grow up to be evil, so let me kill them now. It was punitive. It was retributionary. In other words, the behavior of the peoples of the day were worthy of death. They were worthy of being killed. And we could probably, I, we got a question about some of the pre-flood sexual behaviors <laughs> and so we could talk and about social. that and social behaviors so it, it wasn't just preventative there was a consequentialist aspect to it meaning that god was trying to prevent these cultures from being able to propagate and cause more damage to his world but there was also a retributionary aspect to it as well it wasn't purely preventative it was also retributionary so as christians we're not purely consequentialist i have heard some christians try to say well if you the the majority of abortions are happening and this is by the way if you dissect this argument for more than 10 seconds you realize how monstrous and horrible it is but some people say well a lot of the abortions done are done in low income areas a lot of low income areas spawn a lot of uh, criminals and murderers so isn't if we allow abortion to be illegal then a lot more of these people will be born and therefore there will be a lot more crime and a lot more murder this is a terrible argument first of all it's highly racist and it does definitely speak to the the philosophy of the people who founded planned parenthood uh like margaret sanger who actually believed this way and actually believed that quote-unquote undesirables which would be minorities should be sterilized so they couldn't propagate their genes and ruin the country so we're not going to go down that road yeah but yeah, not yet. Uh, but as a Christian, like I said, we're not saying that we're purely utilitarian. We're also not saying that all life is inherently worthy. I mean, all life should be protected at all costs. There are certain things that you can do that can forfeit your right to life, just as there are certain things that you can do that can forfeit your right to liberty. That's why we agree in putting people in prison. And that's so, what you meant by punitive. That that's There right. are actions that warrant consequences. Exactly. When it comes to the unborn, they haven't done anything yet, good or bad. So that means that whatever you're doing to them in the wound can't possibly be punitive because they haven't done anything that warrants any type of consequence other than being conceived, which is a sin of the parents, not a sin of the child. So therefore, because of that, they should be, their right to life, their right to liberty, their right to pursuit happiness should be preserved because we're not doing anything punitive to them. That's what we mean. And the, also the reason why you're bringing up this argument isn't to divert from the flood, is to show the flood was an entirely different scenario. We're not equating God taking the lives of the world at this point because they had all done something bad any more than this argument portrays the flood of Noah to be an entirely utilitarian or punitive action. God would be the only party who would know the future of these individuals, and this is where the utilitarian argument comes in, 
to know whether they would become more wicked than their ancestors or not. We see this being mentioned during the judgment of Israel. But if, on the other hand, we're to note it wasn't an entirely lost cause, otherwise God could just Thanos snap the planet and start over, he spared Noah and his family and used Noah and his family for 120 years to explain to people exactly what the ark was for as they were building it. But the point being made is this. He's showing you in this argument, that these are two entirely different scenarios, and to then narrow it down to, not to straw man, but to get to the core of the issue, God takes life, therefore why can't I? The answer is, you're not God, which is then what brings us to another objection. When I take it on myself to know the end from the beginning, I claim to have this omniscience, this clairvoyance to be able to see into the future and say that this child's life could potentially result in them sinning, not receiving Jesus and going to hell, but if the child is preemptively sent to heaven, wouldn't that be a long-term benefit to them, rather than just allowing them to live life, act out their sinful nature, and maybe end up separated from God forever? There's two ways I could deal with this, and both of which are equally, again, horrifying when you understand the implications. The first mistake in this line of thinking is, again, going to the book of 2 Samuel, where David has his child taken from him as a result of the sin in which he was conceived, that this was a sin against David. But David knows, and it says this in the chapter, I will go to him, but he shall not return to me. At the moment that the child died, he knew God's decision was final. This child has physically died. I'm going to go to him. So David had a working knowledge that this child, this unborn child, was not killed and then sent to hell or separated from God, literally, as a result of his actions. The only one who was being ultimately punished in a material sense was him as a result of his sin. The child received eternal life, according to his perspective, and that's affirmed later on in Scripture. Now, the assumption, then, is to say, once again, like the utilitarian argument, so the efficiency of life should work in getting the most people to heaven as possible. And if I could rig the system so that no one has the chance to live life, therefore, that's a better life. So zero is better than negative one. If I'm willing to commit murder, hopefully we already see the problem, then I'm capable of making this decision for them rather than this decision being made by the individual itself. And that's the biggest mistake. Are you God? Are you taking that right on yourself to not only know that person's future, which you don't, and at the same time be able to argue from an assumption made in Scripture, one that we don't argue definitively, that we leave in the hands of a God, a God, not you God, a God who does all things well, and note, he is the one who will judge this individual, not I will decide his eternal destiny for him by rigging the system through a horrific act. Mm. When we understand the value of life and its worthwhileness to be sought out to its logical end, the goal isn't to, ultimately, get someone in an environment where they accept the gospel. There are people who are born into perfectly legitimate Christian homes and reject the gospel. There are people born into vehemently anti-Christian homes and receive a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not for you to decide. That's between them and the Lord. And if I'm going to pretend to be the Lord, that's like 
four sins at the same time. Mm-hmm. Not only in taking that right on myself, I'm shedding man's blood, and that is a punitive act. Right. I'm also claiming, I'm making an idol out of myself, a right that belongs to God alone. And this is, again, don't just take our word for it. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39, note this exclusive trait that God describes for himself. He says, see now that I, even I, am and there is no God besides me. Write that down, because he then goes on to say, what kind of things does this God, the God that he alone is, do? I kill and I make alive. I wound and heal, nor is there any that can deliver from my hand. The only one with the right to exercise power over life and death, which abortion is taking on ourselves to do, that's why it's sinful. I don't have the ability to see this person's future. I don't have the right to take this person's eternal destiny into my manipulative little hands, and I also don't do myself any favors before God by taking those rights on myself and committing murder, which is why the first capital punishment in Genesis chapter 9, was laid down in law. If man sheds man's blood, then by man his blood shall be shed. For what? He was made in the image of God. That is, as you stated, the intrinsic value of all human life, something worth preserving, and even, catch this, the opportunity and literal chance, life itself, for them to say no. And that needs to be preserved. If we take it on ourselves to pretend we're God, that is evil. That is idolatrous. That is murder. And that's why the foundation of the pro-life versus pro-abortion argument is centered exactly on that. Is that child a life? Now, this is where the debate then goes on, and I'm kind of, you know, uh, giving you a layup here, but the argument's often then made, well, according to the Bible, life begins at first breath. If you go to the book of Genesis, because you read Genesis chapter 9, I assume you believe Genesis chapter 2, where it says that when God breathed into man's nostrils, then he became a living being. This is Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. So in the case of Adam, the first time life is ever conceived, this is done through breath, that God's breath classified him as a living being. So why don't you believe the Bible? Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting question, and the only way you could read Genesis 2 and come away from that passage with that type of theology or understanding of reality is if you already believe that. Yeah. Um, there's no way you'd be able to read into it, which is why we don't really have any massive rabbinic upholding of that interpretation. We don't have any Christian upholding of that interpretation for thousands of years. It's because no one saw that until this happened. What we're talking about, we're talking about breath, is we're talking about God's animating principle within the life of someone. So we're talking about the special creation of Adam, in which when God forms Adam, Adam is perfectly formed by God out of the dust of the earth, and he's not alive yet. So he's a, he's a corpse at that point. He's a cadaver, right? So when you have a body, you don't have life. And by the way, I'm not for the preservation of rights of just simple human resembling bodies. So if somebody drops dead, I'm not saying, well, that person is totally worthy of having all the same liberty and rights as everyone else. So let's prop them up. How dare us put them in a confining box and bury them in the ground? That's so inhumane. That's so barbaric. No, we preserve life, not just the body. At that point, all Adam was was a body. And God needed to animate Adam through the breathing in of life. Now that the creation is going, the animation of the flesh happens 
before we inhale, before we're able to inhale. So uh, some Christians, by the way, they thought of this as the quickening. This is what Thomas Aquinas believed, and it's because he was ignorant. He didn't know when human babies were able to be functional, when they were able to have life. So he assumed that, well, when a mom feels the baby kicking, right, that's the quickening, then the baby has life, and then we should preserve the life of the child. That happens around 16 to 18 weeks, by the way, those of you guys who didn't know. That is also inaccurate because we know when the child has life. So when the child has life, that is when uh, any type of organic life, we know that it is living when it has organic growth. So if I were to look at this table, for instance, I can make it grow, quote unquote, by adding more boards to it. Now, even though I'm making it grow, you would still say, well, the, the, the wood is still dead. The reason why is because there's no organic growth. When there's organic growth, then we say that something that is biologically alive is actually containing life. So the second a human being has biological life, it's alive, right? That's, that's when the animating principle is at work. And again, we see uh, the more technology we get, we see how active babies are, even when you can't see them with the naked eye, by the way, they are very active, right? They're moving around. They have working hearts at around five weeks. They have uh, the ability to uh, even do directed motion. They have some amount of consciousness, very, very young. Before most women even know they're pregnant with a baby, the babies have life, they have being. So Adam was a different, a completely different scenario. Before God breathed into him, Adam was not alive. That's what we believe. He, he was formed as just a body, and God animated that body with the breath of life. After the creation of Adam, that's how things go. So it's, uh, it's one of those interpretations where, like I said, nobody, nobody would come away from that passage just reading it, believing that. I've read that passage a bunch of times, and when I first heard the argument, by the way, which is this was with last year, that the, the, some people were talking about it online, I was like, I have never heard of that. Where did they even get that from? And when they pointed back to Genesis 2, I was like, I have read that passage at least 100 times. I have never, even looking at it critically, right? yeah. <laughs> even looking at it critically, I never even saw that someone could interpret it that way. Uh, I've read commentary on it. I've read, like I said, rabbinic commentary. I've read Christian commentary. Never have I heard anyone, even on the fringes, take that passage that way, except until this huge pro-choice movement has been going on. So last couple years, that's when people are starting to interpret it that way. It's um, called eisegesis. That's reading right. Reading into, not out of the text, and that is not how you handle writing. That's right. So um, I hope you guys got some out of it. Maybe in the future we'll come up with more uh, common objections to the pro-life movement. If you guys hear any, please ask them on the show. Uh, this is, a good, again, a very good time to start dialoguing with your neighbors, start dialoguing with your friends. What do you think about the pro-choice versus pro-life argument? Where are you? The vast majority of people, by the way, are somewhere in the middle, right? They don't want to perfectly preserve life all the way from the moment of conception, but they also aren't on the side of, well, let's allow for abortion even to the 40th week. Most people are, for some restrictions, just not a lot. Talk to them through it. Why do you think that way? Why is a baby at 15 weeks more worthy of life than a baby at 20 weeks or a baby at 25 weeks? You know, what is the difference? How do you define it? What is your argumentation? Great time to ask questions, great time to get people's perspectives and to try your best to convince.
And also note as well that not all can be. If you run into the kind of person who says, I believe that you should have that right up until five years of age. I've had that conversation this week. It wasn't productive, I'll let yeah. me tell you that much. They are in a place where the Holy Spirit needs to do some softening before you can do any prodding. If that is the kind of person you're dealing with, or if you can, and this is uh, very much a recommended resource, don't uh, necessarily find mutilated pictures of uh, abortions post the traumatizing children and so forth. It's not as effective. Maybe wait till junior high for that. But if, on the other hand, you are talking to someone who's just not convinced it's the stage of life, find a fetal development chart. Get it printed out and show it to someone and just say, point, where do you think life begins? And that is a phenomenal, to quote our good friend Dan Swanson, phenomenal metric in order to find out whether someone is going to be objective or not. And if they are just, you know, looking at this and going, well, I don't know, or just refusing to give an answer, then give them space. That's the only thing that's going to be productive. If, on the other hand, they would point to a stage, then know enough about the chart and the issues to show, okay, why is that more life than those before it? And if you can get the conversation in better directions, note, as again, uh, quoting, I guess, pastors and apologists that we know and love and hold dear, uh, Greg Kokel made his observation in the book Tactics, we're not always meant to bring people to the altar in regards to evangelism and salvation. Sometimes we can just do a little bit of gardening, prepare for future works of God in their heart and in their minds. This can also be true in any form of conversation. So make sure that you don't, A, put it on yourself the burden of convincing them that this life is a life, even if you're talking to someone who calls himself a Christian. And also don't bring with it the expectation that every person is going to be rational, because this is an entirely driven emotional issue. If it was factual, then you wouldn't see pregnancy centers being burned down. You wouldn't see people being attacked and literally growled at in the streets. I'm not kidding, by the way, saying I love to kill babies. Okay. This is an emotional issue, and that needs to be sorted out and left to run its course before intellectualism can be. And the way that we prevent ourselves, this is again speaking from my experience, from disappointment, from frustration, and even playing on their terms, getting angry when it's not warranted, is bringing with yourself a burden that's not appropriate. Just have a goal in the conversation to say words, and if they're good ones, even better, but don't bring that expectation and say, I have to convince this person to be pro-life or I've failed. That's not the case. It's the Holy Spirit's job to change hearts and minds. Yeah, and uh, you could also flip that, which is really cool as well. There are a lot of people in the pro-life movement who aren't Christians. So it is an exciting time to be able to join hands with somebody, you know, whether they are Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, uh, actually a lot of Muslims are pro-life as well, and even, yes, atheists, agnostics are pro-life. It is a good time to start communicating even with fellow pro-lifers about, hey, that's great, you believe you're pro-life, why are you pro-life? What do you think about that? And allow that to kind of inform your conversation towards the gospel, which is cool. All right. Um Real quick clarification before we go out to our questions uh, from our brother like no other, Bo Olette. He wants to know uh, regarding the confusion as to whether there's a difference between murder and killing, sometimes even going back to the Exodus 20 source, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. What's the appropriate translation and what's the difference? Uh, yeah, very good question. So uh, the appropriate translation would be murder. So thou shalt not murder. Now, obviously, if, if God is saying thou shalt not kill, kind of like the earlier question of we are never, ever, ever to take life, no matter what the circumstance, then obviously God is a bit contradictory because he allows Moses to 
perform capital punishment on the people who serve at the altar of the golden calf that Aaron burns. Uh, I mean, well, actually, he says that the fire just kind of created it, so uh, whatever. But well, if life could form from nothing, then I'm sure a literal golden, golden statue of Apis could form by yeah. just throwing jewelry throwing into a fire. Throwing gold in there, yeah. Uh, and then, obviously, the there's a mandate by God for the Israelites to go in and perform more capital punishment in the land of Canaan. So if that was the... delayed, by the way. Yeah, yeah. If that was the intention of the Ten Commandments, that the the one of the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not kill, then God's a bit self-contradictory. So the it's idea the seventh. of... Seventh. Um, yeah, check. so the idea of murdering, though, would be this kind of unlawful taking of life. So that means that, uh, and by the way, biblically, this would include vigilante justice. So if I see someone doing something that is worthy of death, let's say I see someone murder someone else, it is okay, yes, yeah, Sixth Commandment, uh, that is okay if I look at that person and I report them to the government. I report them to the police and allow the government to handle that person's judicial process. But if I were to take a gun and just shoot them in the head, uh, outside of self-defense, just out of retributionary street justice, then that is also considered murder under the law of God. So what God has done is even though, as Sean was quoting earlier, God alone holds the power to kill and to make alive. He has given portions of that power to human governances. That is what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Now, that doesn't mean that governments have the right to make any law that they please. What it means is that governments have the right to recognize the already existent law of God and then to enforce it upon their politic, upon their city-state, the people that they rule over, in order to cause life to flourish. So uh, there are times in the Bible where God, I don't want to say experiments, because obviously God knows what the end of the experiment will be, but he allows for human beings to self-govern, to exist without a governmental structure. Doesn't go too well, right? Doesn't go too well. And God knows it won't go too well, but that is why there is an institution of government, both after the flood in the book of Genesis, but also in the nation of Israel, and then moving from the area of the judges to the area of the kings, right? There's reasons of, as to why God does these things, as to how mankind can properly govern themselves, and the ways in which we can do that. So God does delineate large amounts of power to governing bodies, and that's very important that we recognize the power that they have in order to preserve life. So we can't just go out and murder people willy-nilly. We cannot kill people without cause, but the government does have the right to take human life if the government is wielding that power in a just manner. So uh, once again, government can't create uh, laws out of whole cloth. The Nazi government does not have the right to say, well, Jews aren't human beings, so we can kill them. They don't have the right to do that. But a government can say, this government over here, right? So the allied forces can say, the Nazis are acting in an incredibly destructive, nihilistic, and genocidal manner in order to stop their advance on the European continent. We will marshal a force and we will meet them in combat and we will take their lives to prevent that. Our governments absolutely had the right to do that. That is a right that God has given the governments to do, and it's a right that they can exercise. So and I then, hope that helps. Yeah, and as far as the translation is concerned, the Hebrew word rasha, or however you would want to pronounce it, again, it is appropriately translated as murder. We could go into the lectionaries and so forth, the ways that it's been handled in language, but another good way to do this without even knowing anything beyond English is to just look in your Bible for other uses of that word, and if there is in fact a common theme, then you could note it's the kind of killing that's being consistently right. described. 
So for example, just killing. Yeah, the first usage of the word kill in the Bible, the way it appears in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 is in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 15, where Cain is worried that anyone who would find him would kill him. Now, this wouldn't be an accidental or circumstantial, oh, uh, I've been cursed with bad luck, so if someone trips by me, then they'll you know, knock a boulder over or something to land on my head. I can't socialize. No, it's someone proactively taking it on themselves right. to murder him. Right, to commit an act of vengeance. And we could him. go to other examples like Genesis chapter 26 and verse 7, where Jacob is worried about, or uh, Isaac rather, is worried about Rebecca being so attractive that if anyone outside of the knowledge of the true and living God sees her, they'd just kill him and steal your girl, which is how it still works in that world today, by the way. But the whole point of God is being saying, hey, I'll protect you. I've kind of got a covenant here. <laughs> and also that won't happen, but that's just another side detail. That kind of killing with the intent and motive to steal someone's wife, that's not casual. That That is purposeful and unlawful, especially in regards and comparison to the nature of God. Even if we're going to stick to the book of Exodus itself, when we're talking about the first usage in the book of Exodus, specifically, of killing, it was Pharaoh committing genocide, or infanticide specifically, ironically, against the Hebrew people for being more fertile than the Egyptians. I don't, I don't find that as lawful killing. So note the way that, and this is exclusive, by the way, in the King James translation, people have gotten used to that and use the ambiguity to make a difficult diversion of the topic. The reality is there's a reason the NASB, the New King James Version, and many others retranslate it as murder, not because they're trying to dodge the issue, but because that is an appropriate way the English language communicates it. Right. Sasha has been in there from the beginning. Right. And by, by by the way, there are a lot of Bible-believing, strong Christian brothers and sisters that are pacifistic. So they, they actually do believe that there is no right for capital punishment as well as warfare under any circumstances. I would ardently disagree with those people. I don't think they're, they're correct, but I can absolutely understand where they're coming from, and I don't think it's like a, a crazy reading of the text that's going to lead them into a life of misery and sin. Um, I just think that it's a wrong reading of the text, and they're ignoring certain rights that the government does have indeed, unfortunately, inside of a fallen world. Uh, and, and by the way, some people will say like, well, how could you be pro-life and you're pro-capital punishment? Was like okay, well, let's say I wasn't pro capital punishment. Are you going to become pro life now? Right. So it's a, it's a diversion from the question, right? So uh, keep it surrounded on that. But anyway, all right. Uh, going on from the topic of abortion, we got a question from Robert who wants to know about baptism and discipleship. Uh, he was told by a pastor who's having a Bible study with that when you're water baptized, that is the point in which you're born again. Uh, he shared his testimony that he called on the name of the Lord, a la Romans 10, 9 through 10, and then stated that he was later water baptized. Then he asked, was I not saved? And he, he doubled down. He said, no, baptism in water is the confession of faith. They're the same thing. So in regards to discipleship, he believes you're not discipling. Per Jesus' command in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, if you're not baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, specifically referring to in water, which doesn't appear in that passage. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, he says, 
you're not a believer, you don't fully believe, and that discipleship is a process in our walk with the Lord. That's his argument when it comes to this uh, contention, I guess. He mentions parenthetically, he also believes in the cessation of spiritual gifts, which is weird because usually that argument about baptism is pretty Pentecostal, but let's put that aside. Regarding well, there, are, there are a lot of more traditional denominations that believe in baptismal regeneration. Yeah, but yeah. then also the cessation of spiritual gifts, they'd usually tack things on. But anyway, the argument is, does the Bible put forward, and there's obviously a lot of people who do this, so there's some biblical precedent to that, we're not going to deny that, but is it a consistent biblical worldview to say that unless someone is water-baptized, and confesses that Jesus is Lord. That is legitimate salvation. Now, obviously, I can give some examples in their favor because I don't just isolate myself in an echo chamber. They'd go to the, ser- um, the sermon at Pentecost with the Apostle Peter and make the point and note, what shall we do then when he, they were cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit? And he says, be baptized. Noting that those things were accessible there, he was noting in water. When the uh, confession of faith was made by Cornelius the centurion, and he notes what's withholding water from these men to be baptized, it's always this consistent theme in the Bible that whenever the apostles, the early Christians, the people who knew Jesus face to face, who understood what he was teaching and what he meant, they would make the case and say, every time that someone made a confession from the Spirit, with one exception, the thief on the cross, which again, we're not going to argue for or against this, they would say, well, that's making the point, is that when you are baptized, it's in water, and if you are not baptized in water, you're not saved. Again, the more extreme, not most, but some, would say, you have to be baptized in our church, because we teach this, and you can only receive that from a sound teaching church, spirit-anointed, probably what you're dealing with, Robert. But the point being made is that. What would be the response to that argument? Yeah, so it's important to understand the Jewish culture into which these things are being done, because you got to remember the early church were made up of Jews. So uh, I'm going to kind of go back a little bit and explain where baptism comes from. So baptism is actually not a New Testament invention. Uh, Baptism dates all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. So what happened is that there were certain purification laws in the Old Covenant. So that would mean that there are certain things you can do that would put you in a state of uncleanness. Now, it doesn't mean you're in a state of sin, but it does mean that you're in a state of ceremonially uh, ceremonial uncleanness where you couldn't go to the temple. It's not a sin to touch a dead body, but it is sinful in a way to deliberately bring stinky and sick stuff with you to the temple. They didn't have germ theory yet, but God just says, just bathe. Just wash. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so the way that you would become ceremonially clean was through baptism. So you would go into these baptismals and you would be dunked, you would be immersed. And depending, by the way, sometimes, and that's, by the way, what the word baptism means, means. right, to be immersed. Uh, Sometimes, by the way, you would be just baptized a part of your body. So there were uh, demonstrations for washings of hands. You see that the Pharisees were real sticklers about that. Uh, This would be baptizing. You would be immersing your hands in water. You'd be cleaning them a very particular way. So the baptism was actually all over the Old Testament, right? Right, to baptize your your uh, finger, I guess. Right. Yeah. So this is this is the idea of becoming clean before God. So again, it's not sinless, but it's entering into a state of ceremonial cleanliness 
before God. And this is all a depiction of the fact that God is pure, right? That's what water is a, usually a picture of in the Old Testament. It's a picture of life because we need water to live, and it's also a picture of purity because water carries away impurities. So we're being immersed. And by the way, this is also a picture of the Holy Spirit, and it's also a picture of unity because if you think about it, the, the Jews had this idea of mikvah, which means gathering. So if I'm in a body of water and you're in the same body of water with me, we're connected in some sort of an interesting way. Uh, water connects different continents. They had this really mystical way of looking at it, which is all very cool, but I don't have time to get into that right now. Just so. for the sake of clarity, notice you keep using that word, picture, picture, picture. That's right. What's the substance? Right. And you also have to understand about Jewish community that the idea of the social contract was really, really important. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we have a Western way of looking at things, and we've moved away from social contracts. We believe in deep personal convictions towards things as being the end-all, be-all. So in other words, we've kind of given it, and there's a lot I could say about this, but in Western culture, I think that this is stupid. I think it's actually evil. There has been a move in Western philosophy from believing that there even is such a thing as the spirit, and because of that, there's debate about the unique connection between spirit and flesh, uh, and there's many issues that come from that, including the transgender issue. But and the one we started the broadcast with. That's right. Uh, one of the big ones is that social contracts are not really important in our culture anymore. So if you were to talk to the average young couple that are living together, unmarried, and you were to say, why don't you guys get married? They would say, well, what would that add to us? We've committed ourselves to one another, so why go through this ceremony? It's just a show, right? If this you don't is, know God, then absolutely. Right. Yeah. So they don't really understand the need for a social contract in any context, including God. This is just a Western thing. Now, back in the day, social contracts were really important. You wouldn't do anything without some sort of a social contract. And it was the idea of the introduction of the body to the commitments and convictions of the flesh. And in fact, when God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, which is what we're going to be focusing on for a second here, because Genesis 15 is one of the most important passages in your entire Bible. Bible, Abraham is declared righteous by God by his simple faith. Now, what is faith done by? Is it done by your body or is it done by your mind and your spirit? Well, it's done by your mind. You make a conviction of faith. You make a commitment of faith to God or to your partner in your mind, in your heart. But how do you portray that physically? Well, God does a little ceremony with Abraham. Now, when you're reading the passage, you're like, this is weird. So what Abraham does is he cuts a bunch of animals in half, and then God walks down the aisle. This is the red carpet, right? <laughs> yeah, literal red carpet there. Uh, now, the reason why is because the social contracts of the day were supposed to be symbolic of the kind of commitment you're making to the person. So in that context, what's happening is Abraham and God are denoting to one another by walking through these destroyed animals. What we're saying is if we violate our covenant with one another, our commitment with one another, let us be like one of these animals. Let, this, let us be torn asunder in our bodies for violating what we've committed to do. So the idea of just mental assent was not really a thing that people in the ancient world would even understand. Like you can't just mentally assent to something. You have to incorporate some sort of bodily com uh, commitment utilizing your flesh in some way. Now, once again, that doesn't mean that until the bodily commitment is done, the mental consent means nothing. It just means that they had a great deal of emphasis on the fact that ceremonial types of demonstration of faith 
was very important. So it'd be kind of like, again, someone today saying, well, I've already committed to this person in my heart. Why do I need to walk down the aisle? It's because social contracts matter, right? Incorporating your body into what your mind has already assented to is important, right? You need to do that. You can't just say, well, I'm married in my heart, so who cares? I have no doubt that you're committed to that person in your heart. But to make it official and to do that in a social way where you're incorporating the rest of your friends and your family to hold you accountable to what you're saying to this person, so it's not just between you and God, is very, very important. In the same way, when you give your faith to God, that is what saves you. But going through the baptismal waters is how you make that commitment public. You're going through a ceremony that is utilized, again, incorporating the body into what you've already done in your heart. When Peter says, be baptized, he is not saying, well, you know, whether you're baptized or not is no big deal. No, he's saying, this is how you, how do we know that you guys have actually committed faith to God? God knows, right? So it's not like you going through these waters, God's going to be like, oh, okay, now, now I know, right? Now I know that he's committed to me, you're saved. That's not what's going on. But how do we know? How does the world know? This is your way of socially saying to the world, I am committed to God, no turning back. And that was very important in that culture, incredibly important. And by the way, I would actually be more on... Uh, more excited if people in the West took social contracts more seriously, right? Where they're like, I want to incorporate these inside of my life. When people say it's just a symbol, I'm like, that is so foolish to say, right? And by the way, never say that to your wife, right? Never say it to your wife. Oh, honey, let's look at our wedding pictures. Oh, that's just a symbol, honey, right? Why do you care so much about that day? Very, very foolish thing to say. It matters when you commit yourself to someone publicly. It matters when you make these types of commitments, incorporating your body as opposed to just your mind. It is very important. I'm not diminishing the importance of baptism, but I am saying it has its place. Same with communion, by the way. Some people are just like, well, you know, there's people who go way too far, like, no, 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 this actually is expiatory, right? So when I take in, it's the literal body and blood of Jesus. It's actually an active agent in me being forgiven and atoned for in my sin. No, but there's the other people like, well, it's just a symbol, so who cares? So some people don't take communion ever. Also, no, right? These social contracts matter. You allowing your body to partake of what Jesus did for us, and to allow that to impact your mind and your heart to recommit yourself to God, very important thing to do. Ceremony is important. Human beings are, you know, one anthropologist put it this way, he says we're ceremony machines. It means that we're always coming up with metaphors and symbols for what we're doing in our minds. That's very, very important. I think it's a tragedy that our culture's going away from it, but it's an equal tragedy when people say the ceremony is the whole thing, right? It would be equally like if, uh, as a marriage counselor, I'm like, well, you guys just need to get married. They're like, well, we don't really like each other. Doesn't matter. Sign the paper, right? That's all you need to do, right? That's all that matters to me, that you just sign the paper, that you sign the cut. No, no, no. It's equally important, and in fact, more important that you are committed to one another in your hearts, that you know why you're doing this, that you know why you're walking down the aisle, that you have conviction about it. That's the more important part. But the ceremony doesn't lack importance just because it's not the more important part.
but then defining and deciding where that line is between the ceremony and the substance, again, to follow the illustration of marriage, if I were to legally sign the marriage mm -hmm. certificate to the state, but then got in an accident on right. the way home, and then we weren't able to go, not we specifically, but right. me and the other partner, <laughs> were able to go through the ceremony for another two weeks until I healed, or if I got an infection or of some kind and couldn't attend a public ceremony or wanted to be kissed in a part of that ceremony because my face is melting off, that is the idea. Absolutely. The substance of the marriage is in the contract, but the essence right. of it is illustrated through the ceremony. Now, that is then the line. The marriage is the contract. Right. The wedding <laughs> is the illustration. So then if we ask in the term baptism, what am I being immersed into that is salvation? Well, this is where the counter-argument comes in. It's throughout the Synoptic Gospels. I choose Luke because it's the most direct. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist knew something about immersing people, said this, and this is in regards to the water after addressing people how to prepare their hearts for him, says in Luke 3.16, not John 3.16, Luke 3.16, just as significant, I think, he answered, saying to all, and I indeed baptize you with water. Now, notice he specifies, with water. Is there anything else we can be baptized into, like what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 28? Well, he goes on to say, But one mightier than I is coming, use the Isaiah 40 fulfillment, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, people who hopefully make these arguments are familiar enough with the Bible to know that when Jesus was being challenged and saying, why do you, is he going out and baptizing people? Even John the Baptist's followers were wondering, why is Jesus baptizing people? It notes in the Gospel of John, parenthetically, what? Jesus baptized nobody. His disciples did. But what were they being baptized into? What was Jesus going to baptize us into? That is what we mean by salvation, that the Romans 10, 9 through 10, confession of faith, if you believe in your mouth, or believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and invest with your mouth, as raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the mouth, one confesses into salvation, so on and so on it goes. But note the point that's being made there. What's the substance? What's the signing of the marriage contract? It's the confession of faith. What's the ceremony that acts that out? Water baptism. We encourage it as an act of obedience modeled for us in the church, but to say that the ceremony is the substance is a step too it's far. missing the point. So right. that would be how we deal with that, Robert. Don't worry about your salvation. I guess regarding the cessation of gifts, that's more a secondary issue. We can deal with it more on another time. Feel free to email us, perhaps, but it's kind of the same issue. An emphasis on certain passages we don't necessarily think are making that point, like 1 Corinthians 13, I'm sure he would bring up. We would argue that's not talking about spiritual gifts right. ceasing. Right. It's talking about what is known I know in part, prophesy in part, but when that is perfect has come, then I will know just as I am known. They would say, well, now that the canon of Scripture has been given, spiritual gifts serve no purpose. They're meant to affirm God's Word. We have God's Word. It's been affirmed. Where's God's Word in 1 Corinthians 13? Right. It talks a lot about love. It talks about the ultimate spiritual gift that 1 Corinthians 12 was leading up into, but where's the Word of God in there? That's read into the text, not out of it. Now, is this something I'd divide fellowship over? Maybe if they're a stickler about it, but not... <laughs> Not in doctrine, no. Right. So let us know if that helps you out, Robert. Um, again, maybe find a new fellowship if they're not uh, 
gentle or I guess uh, as passionate about this or lack thereof than they ought to be. But in regards to the whole point of the ceremony, just note Peter's point. There's the wedding, there's the marriage. They're not different, right? <laughs> but the substance of it is in fact the same way that salvation and baptism are. They're both very important, right? but the substance of your salvation doesn't depend on you being baptized. And again, the passage I usually go to, I don't fall back on the thief on the cross as an example of someone. I want doctrinal definitive statements. I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul the Apostle was talking to the church and saying, I don't know if I baptize anyone, because God didn't send me to baptize. came right. to preach the gospel, right. as if they're di two different things, as right. if baptism is unimportant compared to what he was called to. Now, no, diminishing? No. But emphasizing what was Paul there to do, right. to not save people? No, to preach the gospel for their salvation, baptism would be sorted around later. And by the way, understanding that principle will help you sort through some of these kind of more difficult passages, because when you read them sometimes you would say, well, it seems like they are saying that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. So for instance, 1 Peter 3, verse 21 says, there's also an antitype, so he's talking about the flood, by the way, there's an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through resurrection of Jesus Christ. So people who are for baptismal regeneration tend to stop the sentence at um, the, the baptism, the baptism saves, saves us. us, right? Now, the reason why Peter's talking like that is if someone said, well, what uh, if a couple came to me and says, well, what commits us together? What makes us a married couple? I would say, well getting married, right? That's what I would say. Now, if someone was a real stickler and they were like, whoa, Peter, so you're saying that the ceremony is what is going to get these two married? No, but they become kind of synonymous in our minds. The contract is what gets them married, but the ceremony, as Sean said, acts it out. In the same way, baptism in the mind of someone like this would be synonymous, right? Baptism into the Holy Spirit is what saves you, right? Being immersed into Christ, which is what John the Baptist prophesied about, that's what saves you. But the acted out version would be water baptism, which is why he ends the sentence by saying, not the removal of the filth from the flesh, not the water, right? <laughs> not what's saving you, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus. So the faith in Jesus, the good conscience towards God, that's what saves me, but the baptism is what acts it out. Just right. like Exodus, Genesis 15 <clears throat> and the red carpet. Right. All right, uh, we've got time maybe for one more. This is a question from Isaiah, who wants to know why people don't all live the same. If God's no respecter of persons, eh, uh, is it, was God's will to live forever, like to live 10,000 years old? Uh, he's thinking in earthly terms here, but he doesn't think it's fair. There's the issue. Mm -hmm. That children pass away from cancer. Yes, they're in heaven, but they don't have a relief, and they have a relationship with Jesus, but they never experienced life, marriage, children, etc. Well, I guess the question is, Isaiah, is what's the purpose of life? Let me read, just again for the sake of time, Acts 17, where it notes why we've been put on this earth, and we'll wait to listen for things like life, marriage, and longevity. It says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So not only how long they're here, but where they are while they're here. So that, verse 27, they should marry, they should live long, 
No, verse 27, they should seek the Lord in the hope they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God's priority in this world isn't for us to experience everything this life has to offer. It's to know eternal life, which is Jesus Christ, the one whom he sent. Let us know if that helps you out, Isaiah. Thank you for the question. Thank you all for your participation in the broadcast. If we didn't get to your question, feel free to send it to us by email. We'll look forward to answering them next time. Good to have you back here, and we'll see you all again next time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.